crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. How do you invest in a company that doesn't have metrics, that doesn't have data, that you don't even know if the market's ready for? Well, that's Hunter Walk's job every single day as a seed venture capitalist. Hunter's going to share with us today his framework, how he evaluates teams, give us a bunch of insight into how you know when a company that's just getting started might be ready to grow. I'm Kit Bodner, and this is The Growth Show. We're here at the Homebrew office in San Francisco. We're chatting with Hunter Walk. Hunter, World, worldwide headquarters. World, worldwide headquarters. Yes. I once talked to an entrepreneur who told me, uh, I went to see them and they said, you know, welcome to our San Francisco office. And I said, well, how many offices do you have? And he's like, only one. I just <laughs> call it our San Francisco office. I'm like, okay. So you've done like a thousand different things in your life. You've worked at Google. You worked on Second Life back in the day. You're now a VC. I want to start. That's only three. What are the other 997? Well, one of them is that I think there was a very brief stint where you worked on this late night talk show in the very ah, early yes. days of it. And so before we talk about technology, one, what is it like to work on a late night talk show? And two, how the hell did you go from that to working ah, in technology? The first secret is late night talk shows are taped during the day. <laughs> so my senior, year, my senior year of college, I was going to Vassar, so I was about 90 minutes north of New York City. And I'd always been kind of a little bit of a journalism geek, so you know, high school newspaper editor, blah, blah, blah. And I continued doing that at Vassar, and um, I guess I was multi-platform. I ended up with a cable access TV show also. Ooh, cable access. Yeah. You were big time. Uh, I was big time. That was, this was, you know, we're talking 1994 or so, so you were still very much doing editing by hand, sure. and it wasn't fully digital. I enjoyed it. I was like, this is great. And like everything, you know, I sort of, that felt like the minor leagues. And so I wanted to get called up to the majors. And my senior year, I kind of condensed my workload to two days a week. I'm, you know, writing my thesis, doing some independent projects. And um, I had interned at NBC a few summers earlier on more of the business side of the house. And so used those relationships to weasel my way into sort of a five day a week internship that they'd let me complete on you know three days, right? I told them I would prefer to work on Saturday Night Live because that seemed like the best place to be. Seemed like where the cool kids were. Yeah, at the they time, la- right? they laughed uh, <laughs> and and offered me two choices: one, the Donahue Show, Phil Donahue. I think he was national at the time. I don't know if anybody listening to this actually knows who he is, but he was like this white-haired guy who had he was like Oprah, Oprah pre Oprah, right? If Oprah was your grandfather type of thing, <laughs> um, and white. And so I'm like, ah, that's not really my vibe. And they said, well, there's this other show. It's on at 1.30 in the morning. Not many people watch it. And it's like not even renewed for the full year. So it's possible <laughs> it gets canceled during your <laughs> during your internship. It's you like, oh, fail. yeah, living on the edge. That's what I like. Long story short is it was Conan O'Brien. It had just been beginning its second season. And I sort of joke it was my first startup because I really did learn about that show earning its right to exist and building a following over time by being different, not by trying to be sort of the junior version of The Tonight Show or, you know, Letterman 2.0. And I think the, the single biggest career choice in my life was to not stay on the show when I graduated. So there was part of me that very much thought that maybe my future would be in kind of arts and entertainment, mm-hmm. um, but I chickened out. Why? Why'd you chicken out? I hadn't yet grown comfortable that personal hunter and professional hunter were the same thing. <laughs> so I had this notion that I needed to get started 
earning a living and real job, real job. And so real job, you know, to me meant at the time, like, okay, that's either management consulting or investment banking. And I knew I didn't want to do investment banking. So I went and became a management consultant for a few years. I'd been a liberal arts guy. So it was, you know, there was, I was attracted to the idea of learning uh, and being exposed to a lot of different businesses. But like, if I had stayed on Conan, we would be very different. We wouldn't be talking right now. You know, like I'd be somewhere else. Do you think you still would have ended up in technology (laughs) at the end of the day? That's a great question. I would say it's not a coincidence that, you know, sort of my time spent really as an operator was Second Life, AdSense, and YouTube. So there were all kind of aspects of publishing and creation that were open to a broader set of creators than Mm -hmm. traditional media was, and then had an economic model that allowed you to see dollars, not just retweets, likes, you know, LOLs from your (laughs) creation. So I'd like to imagine that if I had taken the actual creative path, I would be leveraging some of those tools, but probably not necessarily working at one of those companies. Cool. Um, So we have a bunch of operators who listen to the show as well as entrepreneurs. So for the operators out there, what advice do you have for them? You, You worked on some really interesting projects, technology, like you just said, YouTube, AdSense, Second Life. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about being a great operator that you could share with somebody else? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a few things that I find to be common no matter what your particular role or your skill set or even where you are in your career. One of them, I think, is you have to sort of take an approach that you are you know, a caretaker of something larger than you. If you're working on a growing company or, you know, sort of a product that has a chance to be really wide reaching, to become a platform, you sort of have to be deliberate about the phase you're signing up for and think about, I have to do my job along with the team to get this from one part of its maturation to its next. And if you've chosen correctly and you've picked an interesting company and a good team to work with, I think the average person should stay maybe a little bit longer than they sometimes do in their job. I talk to a lot of operators, entrepreneurs, you know, usually at the younger side of their career, and they sort of start to top out uh, Mm -hmm. after, you know, sometimes even 12 or 18 months. And they're like, oh, I feel like I'm not learning as quickly. And sometimes they'll sort of pull the ripcord and go look for another job before they sort of really think about that problem and how they might solve it in their current company. And I usually think there's two ways to solve it. One is if you're in a growing company, there's almost always going to be a role you can step up into. And so at any point in your career, picking a company that's in the knee of its growth curve or growing quickly will always create opportunity for you, no matter whether you step in with a senior title or a more junior title. And the second thing is think about learning, not necessarily just as skill acquisition, but as management and leadership. I'm proud of the fact that I stayed at Second Life, AdSense, and YouTube through all very deliberate, distinct phases. Second Life was sort of year zero to three. We got the product launched. AdSense was specifically taking it from a small, medium website product to a mass market. And then YouTube was post-acquisition, where it was sort of People thought of it as a fad that had was about dogs and skateboards. There were all these lawsuits and it wasn't making any money to something that was a billion users, a multi-billion dollar property, and 100% legit. And then the next group took it and said, okay, now what does it mean to compete with television? How do we get you to watch for an sure. hour a day? But staying through that point of where, oh, this is hard or this isn't as much fun as it was in years one or year two taught me about managing teams, taught me about getting across that chasm. And I think ultimately, you know, sort of set me up to take on bigger challenges subsequently, rather than just thinking about it as 
what functionally am I doing? And if I know how to do it already, I need to go find somewhere else. All right. So VC life. I think what's interesting about venture capitals, two important components there, nutritionally need to have some strong theses about what you believe in terms of markets that have a lot of opportunity. And then you need to have a good understanding of like how to evaluate entrepreneurs and teams and who has the best chance of being successful. So first, kind of your personal thesis around markets and opportunities in today's world that are big. Yeah, I'd caveat this by saying ultimately there's things we believe, but we want to get pulled into the future by entrepreneurs um, <laughs> and the vision they describe. Because as a seed stage fund, homebrew needs to be early and or contrarian. If we're just, you know, sort of piling on to what everybody believes to be true, there's almost no way for us to, sure. you know, succeed in, an out, succeed in an outsized fashion. I think, though, what my partner Sacha and I both believe, and this is reflected in our sort of first three and a half years of the fund and the investments we've made, is that we've moved from industrial capitalism to technology capitalism. You know, we believe software has been slamming into financial services, slamming into biology, and, you know, our investments sort of follow that mentality. Where are areas where technology has not necessarily played as large a role in their development, where those industries and consumers or employees in those industries are starting to see the benefits of tech. But for us at the stage we do it, I sort of say it's team, team, market. So even though we have that conviction, if we don't see a team yeah. where we believe that they have both the attitude and the aptitude to solve the problem that they're taking on, then we won't make an investment. There's no belief that we have that we can fix a team or you know we're so good that if we just spend an hour <laughs> or a week with a team, we'll show them the future. What we want are people who are working on projects, thinking about them as problems that need to be solved over you know a 10 year or longer period, and then we wanna be around there for the first few years. Well, and how do you evaluate that team? Because they're entrepreneurs trying to figure out who they should co-found a company with. There's people who are thinking about how they should, which startup they should join. And I think they could use some advice on how, like how you actually evaluate I that. think everybody, you know, like, there's some people who might tell you that this is a science, like, oh yeah, here's how I pattern match. I, I think it's an art and a preference <laughs> in the sense Fair of enough. different investors are going to be comfortable with different types of founders. I don't mean comfortable in the sense of like their personalities or things like that. I mean... Every founder has some challenges that that founder needs help on, and there's ones that you believe that you're better equipped to solve or not. So, for example, we really love missionary founders, you know, if you sort of think of a missionary mercenary scale. Mm -hmm. And we identify those people by talking to them a lot about what we call sort of founder market fit. Why is this a problem you want to work on? How did you arrive at this? Is this something you have empathy for? Mm -hmm. Or have you just sort of done a back-of-the-napkin calculation that there's, you know, a large market here and you want to make some money? What are the trade-offs in working with missionary founders? Well, they have really, really strong points of view, and you sometimes need to help them understand how to incorporate new pieces of data mm -hmm. to not change their true north, but to maybe change the path they get there. They've also been thinking about this problem for a long time or thinking about it intensely, so sometimes they get frustrated when others don't understand it in the same way they do as quickly as possible. Oh, I, you know, I think I might have hired the wrong VP of sales. Why? Well, because he doesn't understand everything exactly the way I do <laughs> after one 60-minute meeting. I'm like, you have to understand that you've been thinking about this for a very, very long time. I'd much rather talk with founders, talk with CEOs about those challenges than work with somebody who, you know, the minute the business hits a wall, is you know recalculating the you know the net present value of being a founder yeah. and you know thinking about maybe doing something else. I think what's interesting about the VC world, it's still a little mysterious to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. they, they don't kind of understand it. I think what's interesting about what you're doing is you're very much on the seed 
side of the venture capital landscape. I wonder if you could just share with people what is different at the seed stage yeah. of investing as maybe compared to later stage. Well, I'll tell you, you think VC is confusing. When I got out <laughs> to the Bay Area in 1998 for grad school, it was a black box. And intentionally, oh, intentionally yeah. oh, so in some ways. I think if you're going to invest in seed stage, what that usually means for us at least is we're playing a leadership role in, if not the first dollar they're raising, certainly the first VC-led round. So somebody has either raised $0 to date or maybe they've raised a few hundred thousand dollars and they're looking to raise... 500,000, a million, $2 million, of which you know we'll do 35, 40, 50% of that. So we're signing up to sort of be alongside them. We're signing up to vouch about them to other investors to put time ongoing. And I think what you need to be comfortable with if you're investing at that stage is the lack of data. During your due diligence, you're not usually getting a spreadsheet because there's not a whole lot of <laughs> there's not data there. operating history yeah. that you're going to sort of extrapolate out and say, you know, is this graph moving in the right direction? And as you start getting into some of the later, later stage investing, you're, of course, still betting on the team, still betting on the momentum. But you're also trying to look at the fundamentals of the business and say, because the bar gets higher and higher, you know, is this going to be a billion dollar company? Is this going to be something that could IPO? At our stage, we try not to ask that question in the same way. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not thinking about what's the total addressable market. I'm just thinking, is this a large, urgent, and valuable problem? Because if this is a large, urgent, and valuable problem, and the team has the attitude and aptitude to solve that problem fully, they are going to build a business that is incredibly valuable. The exact number of commas in that value, yeah. you can imagine so many different paths. Most startups don't succeed. So you don't have a lot of data, you're investing in people, usually over a constrained time frame of getting to know them, and you uh, have to be prepared for a potentially high or at least non-zero mortality rate in companies not making it the distance. That's why I love it. But it's not it's, for the faint of heart. That's why, I mean, I, I, I think we were very deliberate in choosing that stage. Yeah. We know that from our own operating history and our own investing history, that that's what we really enjoy. But it's like I said, it's not for everybody, and it's not as glamorous sometimes as people think. So you have your criteria, you know, your urgent, big problem. Mm-hmm. What's the most important one of those? Like, well, what's the I mean, most, uh, you, you're saying they have to always, have all. Team always. Team, team always. Team always. Okay. Large, urgent, valuable. The way I think about it is if you have none of those three, I don't think you have a business. <laughs> if you have one of those three, I actually still don't think it's worth your time. If you have two of the three, I believe you can build a sustainable and probably valuable business, but maybe not venture scale. Mm-hmm. And you need all three of three in order to really hit venture scale. And that's important because people sometimes hear that and like when I say two of three and you can have a good business, they're like, oh, a lifestyle business or something like that. Like, absolutely not. Most businesses that are viable like shouldn't be looking for venture capital. Venture capital is a very particular type of fundraising that probably gets over-applied. Fortunately, there are more other options than ever that sit in between maxing out your credit cards Mm -hmm. and venture. They include crowdfunding, they include angels, they include revenue, which is a great way to grow your business. Customers. Customers. (laughs) It's a good way to grow. Um, And none of those preclude taking venture, but taking venture precludes a lot of other optionality in terms of what the steady state of your business it forces your hand like. to really grow at a specific scale. Yeah, I'll encounter people who I think like this could be a really great business, and I think you might mess it up by taking venture. What's interesting about that is you don't hear enough people talking about urgency mm-hmm. and like the urgency of the problem. And man, that strikes me as something that gets overlooked a lot. Because oh yeah, there's you can have valuable things, just not that there's the certain world is segments. Ready for. Of, you know, for example, uh, software companies selling into small businesses. 
is an example of where people often, especially entrepreneurs who may not have a direct connection to the space, misunderstand how to calculate urgency, right? So their proof of urgency to me will be, I asked 50 accountants whether they'd want this app and all 50 said yes. And I said, that's the equivalent of asking my four and a half year old if she'd like ice cream. Like every, (laughs) you know, but then if you ask her like, do you want to put in the work to make the ice cream? Do you want to, you know, change your workflows? And so you encounter folks who like, yeah, of course, what you're describing to them sounds great. But when it comes down to, or like a small business owner, is this one of the three problems that they want to solve this year and Mm -hmm. can pay attention to? Have they come up with a good enough workaround where your improvement needs to be an order of magnitude better in order for them to learn some new system? And do they have a budget? Are they willing to pay for it? Are you telling them that this is something that's going to increase their revenue or decrease the cost? Are you trying to sell it into the person whose job it would eliminate? Like, there's a lot of very interesting aspects to understanding, is this the right product for the market? And so of large, urgent, and valuable, I think you're right that like urgent is the one that's probably the most nuanced and that we spend a lot of time trying to understand, especially in industries that we might not be familiar with. As somebody who has spent the last seven years in SMB, it is fascinating how SMBs will hack stuff together on the software side of things to fix problems. Oh, yeah. And they, they really need unique solutions to actually have that software be I mean, viable. the fact that most businesses still run some number of their business processes off of Excel gives you a sense of, of course, like specialized scheduling software would be better, but it kind of works. I just do it in a spreadsheet. I print it out. I tape it up on the wall Monday mornings and everybody, you know, works. So like you wanting to sell me a $999 a month scheduling app, like... Yeah, I got you know I got brownies to bake for the, you know, for, the for the bakery, you know. Uh, okay, so so to close this out, the last question I have for you would be: of the deals you passed on in your time as a VC, is there one or more of them that's taught you something? Like, have you learned from some of the deals that you passed on? That's a great question. I would say one category of passes that we still wrestle with. So I said before, team, team, market, right? Yeah. Like ultimately, what we want to do is be excited about the team and excited about the the market. Yeah. When we encounter a team that we just love. They're so great. They're great. You just love them. But we don't love what they're doing. Yeah. Should we trust in them to figure it out? Like, (laughs) is there a point at which you try not to be smarter than the entrepreneur versus, you know what? There's plenty of smart teams that have failed because they went after the wrong market, worked on the wrong problem. And so that's one where it's definitely happened a few times for us. Sometimes correctly passing sometimes in hindsight and still early, but in hindsight, maybe we should have trusted the team. And the way that Sacha and I have thought about it is we made two changes as we started to see this occur once or twice. The first was to be really explicit when we're talking to one another about, is this team a five on a one to five, right? Mm -hmm. Because if it's a five team, which we want to be like relatively, uh, there are very few five tight fisted, right? Like we want to be like, not everybody's a five. Let's really take their opinions seriously. Even if we're like, that sounds wrong. Um, <laughs> and then the different, and then understanding, do we look at the data the same way or look at the market dynamics the same way and just disagree on either what the future is going to look like or one's ability to change that? Or do we just see the world in two totally different ways? Mm-hmm. Now, both of those, you know, <laughs> now, which one is the good one, which is the bad one? Like that's that was going to be my next that's well, question. Cause we yeah. said we have to be earlier contrarian, right? Yeah. So like there's probably good examples of both of those. The case of like, wow, this team sees something nobody else does. They could be wrong, but if they're right, this is transformative. Yeah. Okay. Then it's just, can we sign up for committing to help them? Like, can we put sweat and reputation behind it? Can we be 100% confident and on board? When we're seeing the data correctly or seeing the same type of data and just judging it differently, 
it's a little bit harder, right? Yeah. It's a little bit more nuanced. And I'd say, my guess is that when we make those calls, there's still going to be gut calls. There's not a formula <laughs> that says, let's score them on five different attributes or let's get an MBA intern to do a quick like SWOT analysis on the market. That's one reason why venture firms invest in 20, 30 companies per fund and not two. Right. So we'll take some of those risks. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah. Really awesome chat with you. Absolutely. Thanks, I appreciate Anna. it.